of 1 Peter. I am going to open us up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for this study on 1 Peter. God, we thank you for his encouragement to believers. Lord, we thank you that um, your word is true, God. I thank you for all the ladies that are participating in this study. I pray that our study will be glorifying to you. Thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Amen. All right, so here we are in chapter five, the last chapter of this epistle or letter that was written by Peter. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been really enjoying this study and finding this content relevant and applicable. Last week, Carrie taught us about some of the attitudes and actions we as believers should have, how we can love deeply and prepare our minds for sufferings that we might face in this life. This week, Peter closes his letter with some additional instructions, encouragements, and closing remarks. He begins with the instructions in verses 1 through 4, explaining the relationship of the elders to the church. It's important to remember that at this time, the church elders may have been facing persecution. Peter also identifies himself as a co-elder and an apostle or a witness of Christ. Peter gives three appeals to the elders. First, he shares that they are to be shepherds of God's flock, not because they must, but because they are willing. The second appeal is to be eager to serve, not for financial gain, but for serving. Lastly, elders are to be examples for the people that they serve, not dominating their authority over them. And these ideas tie into the attitudes and the mindset of believers to serve one another. These appeals may not apply to any of us as elders, but if you're in a leadership role, these same ideas can be applied to that role. So elders are supposed to shepherd and care for those that they are serving. They should have concern for those in their communities. Peter continues in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade. The chief shepherd is Jesus. This is the only time this phrase is written in the Bible, but we can recall Jesus identifying himself as the good shepherd in John 10, 11. And the shepherding language is used throughout the Bible. When he appears, he will honor those that serve in this way with a crown that never fades. So during the Greco-Roman world, crowns were given for athletic and military conquests. These crowns would often be made of a wreath of leaves, which would eventually fade. The crown of glory is one of five crowns that we read about in the New Testament. The other crowns are the crown of life, righteous, righteousness, rejoicing, and the imperishable crown. These crowns are eternal rewards, and elders can be encouraged that Peter is speaking of a greater reward for those serving in this position. If you were with us when we studied the book of Jude, you may rec recall verse 12 warning about these people who were shepherds feeding themselves. It is evident that there, were, that there are specific guidelines and warnings for those who are shepherding. Throughout this chapter, it's likely that Peter is referencing Ezekiel chapter 34, which I would encourage you to spend some time reading. In chapter 34, Ezekiel writes, what shepherding God's flock is supposed to look like. I'm going to read Ezekiel 34 verses 2 to 4. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, shepherds, thus says the Lord. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. 
Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So the three appeals to the elders that Peter makes parallels the ideas that we read about in Ezekiel. Shepherds should take care of the flock. They shouldn't be seeking material profit, and God condemns those who rule harshly over the flock. So after the words written to the elders, Peter transitions to addressing the younger. The younger could mean a person that is younger in age. It could mean younger in the faith or a different position within the church. Peter writes, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. So the younger in church should submit to church leadership. Now this word submit was also used in chapter three, verse one, describing the relationship between a husband and a wife. So it's a repeated concept. Peter first gave the instructions to the elders in the way that they ought to lead and guide the church. The younger should follow that example of the elders. This is showing us an example of a discipleship relationship. It is important though to remember that Peter isn't asking his readers to be obedient no matter what a leader might say. If a leader gives counsel that contradicts God or the gospel, they shouldn't be followed and leaders are not exempt from accountability. 1 Timothy 5.1 and 19-20 address how to respond if an elder misuses their leadership. Additionally, Peter addresses false teachings in 2 Peter. So as verse 5 continues, Peter transitions from addressing the younger to addressing everyone together. He asks them, To all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This is 1 Peter 5b. Peter's quoting Proverbs 3.34. So humility can be defined as freedom from pride or arrogance. We're reminded here that humility is an important attitude of believers and that the church runs more smoothly when relationships are grounded in an attitude of humility. As one commentator, Thomas Schreiner, wrote, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. So we can have humility toward one another because we are called to be humble under God. Verse 6 continues with the idea of humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So this is a reminder to remain faithful and to trust in God's plans and in his timing. I don't know if you can remember, but in our pre-COVID days, sometimes people would have a surprise party. The guests would gather um, ahead of time and hide themselves before the unsuspecting surprise recipient arrived. If you've ever been to one of those parties with a little kid or someone maybe not paying attention, uh, they might not be in their hiding place and reveal themselves a little too soon. If everyone wasn't waiting for the proper time, the impact or the magnitude of the actual surprise would be lost. So the right timing is what creates the full effect of this event. Now I know this is a lighthearted picture of waiting and I don't wanna minimize the real sufferings that some Christians experience in waiting. 
Peter knows that believers are walking through and will continue to walk through trials. So he urges his audience to wait for God's perfect timing to exult or to praise you. Verse 7 continues by saying, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This word casting is the same word that they used for casting nets when fishing. It helps me to think about something that I worry about and putting it on the end of a fishing line. And my prayers are like casting that line out to God. He takes that worry off that hook. Now, Peter's not only acknowledging that believers have worries, but he's affirming that God cares enough about you and what you're going through for you to be able to give it over to him. I'd like to add that sometimes we need help with this process. Sometimes that help could look like um, relationships with other believers, and sometimes it could come in the form of counseling. Problems and circumstances don't always go away or change, but Peter wants us to know that God cares for people even in their suffering. Giving our anxiety to God is another way to humble ourselves to him because we have to let go of our desire to control situations and to trust in God's plans. Next, Peter reminds us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter makes a point to believers that there's a spiritual world that exists around us. There's an enemy that is seeking to devour. There's a tension here because we know God is not cruel and we can trust in him to care for us. And that we're reminded of in the previous verse. But on the other hand, we do have an enemy. So just because God holds you doesn't mean that you're immune to difficulties in this life. Peter adds to resist the enemy. This is not passive, rather it is something that we can actively stand firm in. Our faith, as Hebrews 11.1 defines it, is now that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I'm not sure what helps you to actively stand firm in your faith during trials. Uh, maybe it looks like staying connected to God through prayer spending time in his word, or your relationships with other believers. We also know that Christians experience rejection and suffering. Author Jim Samra uses the illustration that we celebrate Veterans Day for all who have served. So some are serving in more hostile situations, but every one of them made a sacrifice and a contribution. Likewise, Christians serve, some Christians serve in more hostile situations, but every Christian who suffers for God is making a sacrifice and a contribution to God's kingdom. In the Grace New Testament commentary, um, the commentator writes, Peter does not pray that his readers will be removed from their trials. He prays that they will endure them victoriously. So how often do we pray that believers, for believers to escape their trials and then forget to pray for their great growth during the trial? How often do believers pray for a trial to be removed from their own lives when they should be asking, how can we glorify God through this? Over these past few months, um, I've had some friends and family members walking through trials such as sickness, separations, loss of income, loss of material items. And it's given me a new perspective to add to my prayers for God to be able to grow them through their trials. Perhaps you've walked through some trials or are walking through them 
or you know someone else who is and who can apply this um, to your prayer life too. So this brings us to the conclusion of the letter. Verses 10 and 11, Peter starts with, and the grace and the God of all grace, we are reminded that God's grace is stronger than any suffering. Peter continues, he will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. These are additional words of encouragement to his audience who were experiencing persecution in the physical and spiritual realms. We can be encouraged that any sufferings in this life will seem little compared to eternal glory. I love the use of the word restore here because restore means to fix something that is broken. It's not simply repairing it, but it's actually fixing it. So in our humanness, we might want things to be fixed now, but that's not always the way that God works. In God's wisdom and providence, sometimes things will be fixed now, but we can have faith that in the end, all things will be restored when his kingdom comes. God is able to strengthen believers all the way to the end. Verse 11 is a doxology giving glory to God. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. God is sovereign and powerful, and believers can continue to be encouraged that God is in control. The last section are the final greetings. So the last two verses are a typical way that this letter would have been ended during this time period. So Peter starts by describing the contents of the letter in brief and then giving a brief closing statement. In 512, Peter writes, By Silvinius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. It's unclear of the specific role of Silvinius or Silas as some translations have, but it's likely that he was the scribe, in addition to the person that would have carried this letter to the churches that it was written to. Peter calls him faithful. This shows that Peter trusted him. Then Peter summarizes what he wrote in the letter. Exhort and declare that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He adds, she who is in Babylon. The she here is likely referencing the church. And we find the language of the church um, as a bride of Christ in 2 John. He writes, who is in Babylon. Babylon is both a historical city and a theological term as a reference for a city that is living against God. It's probable that Peter's referring to Rome and he's speaking in code by using the term Babylon. Um, describing Rome as Babylon during this time as a city against God. They were persecuting Christians, there was pride, there was idolatry and immorality. He ends with, um, sends you greetings and so does my son, Mark my son. Mark was not his physical son, but it was a mentee of his. And Peter says to greet one another with a kiss of love. This may sound a little awkward, but it was a standard way of people to greet each other in the church back then. I don't think Peter's asking us to start this now, but we can remember to warmly greet one another in church or other believers. And finally, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So peace was significant because he was writing to an audience that was experiencing persecution. Ladies, I hope that we can all remember that word peace. It's an important reminder to remember God is in control. We can have peace in Him no matter the circumstances, sufferings, or trials.